Lives of the Unconscious. A podcast on psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Episode 1. What is psychoanalysis? No other psychotherapeutic practice generates as many rumors as psychoanalysis. The patient lays on the couch. The therapist, always under the guise of Sigmund Freud, rummages around in their childhood with inappropriate explanations, expecting to find behind every word some perverse innuendo, drawing crude conclusions that, at best, don't help the poor patient the slightest, and at worst, do them harm. Or, alternatively, the therapist says nothing, falls asleep behind the couch, and yet, after each full hour, pockets a wad of cash to gratify whatever dubious inclinations he has. For after all, it is he who has the mental problems. We will see whether there is anything to such claims. What is psychoanalysis? The easy answer is one of multiple psychotherapeutic practices for treating mental illness, such as depression or anxiety disorders. There are a multitude of other psychotherapeutic practices, for instance, behavioral therapy or systemic therapy. Psychoanalysis, too, has developed various therapeutic methods, for which it would be difficult to find one common denominator. Moreover, Psychoanalysis is much more than a psychotherapeutic practice. It has become part of our cultural heritage and has even taken root in other fields, such as art or the advertising industry. But we will hear more about that some other time. With psychoanalysis, of course, one immediately thinks of Sigmund Freud. And indeed, it was Freud, a neurologist working in Vienna, Austria around 1900, who founded it. All the same, it isn't correct to equate psychoanalysis of the 21st century exclusively with Sigmund Freud, even if many do exactly this, arguing as they then do that the refutation of Freud's theories means that psychoanalysis is obsolete. So like every other science, we owe psychoanalysis to its founder, and, as in every science, there have been many developments since then. Even during Freud's lifetime, and to this day, psychoanalysis has continued to evolve. Famous psychoanalysts who have influenced psychoanalysis in one way or another are, for instance, Alfred Adler, Carl Gustav Jung, or Melanie Klein, Eric Erikson, Eric Fromm, Wilfred Bion, Joseph and Anna-Marie Sandler, or, to name some contemporary analysts, Peter Fonagy, Otto Kahnberg, or Jessica Benjamin. Different schools have formed worldwide, each following different therapeutic approaches and differing greatly in their treatment techniques. Patients don't only lay on the couch talking about their childhood. An analyst becomes acquainted with numerous therapeutic approaches during their education, and when all goes well, develops their own therapeutic demeanor, instead of merely following a specific school. It's by no means easy to stipulate what links all of these psychoanalytic approaches, if, that is, it even makes sense to speak of the psychoanalysis, or whether it is, on the other hand, 
something like an umbrella term for capturing different currents. But perhaps there are basic principles, which at the very least, most schools of psychoanalysis share, and which could serve to clarify some misunderstandings. Number one, the role of the unconscious. When we hear the word the unconscious, it conjures up a deep, dark abyss inside us, ostensibly where our ugly nature and evil wishes lurk, determining our actions and obscurity. On the contrary, that has very little to do with what psychoanalysts understand as the unconscious. Contemporary psychoanalysis regards the unconscious as neither some mysterious essence nor as a place hidden deep in our psyche, nor as the evil inside. In the first place, unconscious means little more than particular aspects of our thought, action, and feeling that we are not conscious of. To understand this as a result of repression is only one possible alternative. Much of what psychoanalysts understand as the unconscious are not repressed impulses, but rather quite ordinary psychic processes which operate beyond linguistic reflective thought. Our thought doesn't merely function on a cognitive level. There is also thought in feelings and affects, thought in pictures, and there is thought that is expressed in our action. After all, there is a language of the body. Becoming acquainted with these forms of thought requires a kind of sensitive engagement. Just as one must immerse oneself in the language of music in order to understand what music is. Every experience traverses different levels of our psychological life. For indeed, that is what characterizes psychological developmental processes in the first place. Out of a diffuse bodily state arises a feeling which can be given a name, something that, out of an inscrutable psychic symptom, permits understanding and that pertains to our self and our own history. Bringing to consciousness in this context means not the disclosure of displeasing truths, but rather psychic transformation. Modern psychoanalysis is concerned with exactly this kind of psychic transformation. It has learned a great deal from developmental psychology, which examines how the thoughts and feelings of children develop. We know, for instance, because of modern theories of attachment, that inner thought processes arise in childhood as a result of our experiences and relationships with others, beginning, for most of us, with our parents. Psychic transformations are a complex affair, for it doesn't merely involve the production of rational constructs. To know on a cognitive level that a mental problem came about through a difficult childhood doesn't ultimately help much. That is not what primarily takes place in psychoanalysis, contrary to that widely spread cliché. Only once thought and feeling, experience and knowledge converge does one speak of something being conscious in psychoanalysis. And that occurs as a result of the emotional experience that the patient has in the course of therapy through their relationship with the therapist. No therapist has interpretive keys at hand for treating symptoms. Understanding is something individual that can only arise through the interaction between therapist and patient. Even dreaming has significance in this context, 
It renders thought in images and lies on the plane between conscious contemplation and sheer physical experience. Psychic change, as it often takes place during therapy, is for this reason most often first legible in our dream life. Our psyche is transformed, and so too are our dreams. Number two, the role of conflicts. Even in the familiar phrase, mental disorder, one can find disguised a notion of humans that runs counter to a basic principle of psychoanalysis. Disorder describes a defect in a system that is otherwise functional and runs smoothly, like a broken cog in a production line obscuring the entire production process, or a pebble in a runner's shoe. It disrupts, it causes disorder. With this kind of conception of sickness, it is of the utmost importance to remove the disorder so that the production line or the foot can continue to run. Psychoanalysis, on the other hand, starts from the premise that there is no frictionless, normal state of affairs in human psychology. Our psyche is above all our survival artist and doesn't create anything wasteful. Much of what appears from the outside as dysfunctional or disruptive does in fact make sense, even if it doesn't so readily reveal itself as such. From the beginning of life, we struggle with various aspirations, wishes, and demands, and there isn't a solution that satisfies all aspects of our psyche. It is, in fact, seldom that we are entirely one with ourselves. Mostly, we negotiate between different inner impulses and demands, and so we invariably find ourselves in certain conflicts. This is also what is meant by the common term psychodynamic, which is often used as a synonym for psychoanalysis. Dynamic comes from the Greek word dynamis, power, force, that is, the science of different converging psychic forces. For example, when we wake in the morning and must go to work, or perhaps have to study for school, and yet just don't feel like it and would rather sleep, click around on the internet, or listen to interesting podcasts, in psychoanalysis, we would speak about a conflict between the pleasure principle, that which we find most pleasurable, and the reality principle, that which compels us to carry out our obligations. In most cases, a compromise is possible. We defer our need for sleep, go begrudgingly to school or work, and in exchange, we treat ourselves to something nice that evening or on the weekend. But when the reality principle demands too much from us, work is too boring, too overwhelming, or too frustrating, then it may be difficult to find a good compromise. We begin sleeping at work, or just eat chocolate all day long, sugar as it were, for the pleasure principle. Eating lots of chocolate cannot be characterized simply as a disorder, for it could be remedied with exercise or dieting. It has its purpose, and is part of a mental compromise solution. We need to eat chocolate for something, which is why it is so difficult to give it up. Mental symptoms are often, although by no means always, about developing these kinds of compromises, although, as we will soon hear, this is often somewhat more complex. Ultimately, we all must constantly manage conflicts and make compromises, 
And so on that score, we are all a bit neurotic, which by the way is okay. Number three, the role of childhood. One of the most common stereotypes about psychoanalysis is that it is especially preoccupied with childhood. The patient lies on the couch and talks about the past. In the end, they understand perhaps where some of their problems originate, but this doesn't really help much in the present. And yet even this image doesn't have much to do with contemporary psychoanalysis. Let's imagine a patient who in the course of their analysis speaks as much about current daily circumstances as they do about their childhood. Biography is of course a very important part of understanding ourselves and the reconstruction of one's life story. It will in most cases be part of any longer therapy, say for instance in order to take leave of specific aspects of our lives. Indeed, it is without a doubt that childhood is of particular importance in one's own personal development, especially in those cases in which it was accompanied by many difficult or even traumatic experiences. But psychoanalysis is not concerned with the past as a mere memory, but rather, and here is the decisive difference, as a reactualized past. The past is relevant for psychoanalysis insofar as it is present in our internal expectations patterns, and experiences, and leaves a possibly painful imprint on our lives. For instance, when a person spends their entire life seeking the unfulfilled love of their parents, in that they continually seek out partners whose own emotional distance resembles that of their parents, and in this way repeats that experience of rejection. Or, say, someone who feels that the only way to be good and worthy of love is through ceaselessly striving and conforming to the needs of others. A person's story is not past. It is, in the manner in which they and others experience it, part of the now. Relationship patterns, which also play a role in the interaction with a therapist and the here and now of the therapeutic encounter, is the centerpiece of psychoanalytic practice. Number four, the role of relationships. To be sure, all psychoanalytic schools are in agreement that interpersonal relationships are of critical importance for the genesis and treatment of mental illnesses. Our personalities do not exist in a vacuum. Virtually every feature that we ascribe to ourselves as well as to others, whether that is being friendly, attentive, withdrawn, or irritating, subservient, or aggressive. Behind all of these words, there is a relational dimension. We are always friendly to or angry at someone. That is because, as mammals, we are social beings through and through. We are always in some relation in our thoughts, feelings, wishes, and our aversions, even while we are alone. Even our relationship to ourselves is structured like an interpersonal relationship. For indeed, it arose at one point within some kind of interpersonal relationship or another. Our inner voice was once the voice of another. For most of us, we first learned who we are from our parents, from whom we received our names, something we didn't choose ourselves. 
What we are emerges to a considerable degree through the experiences we have in relationships. Hasn't each one of us at some point or another experienced certain relationship patterns repeating themselves persistently? Over and over, one takes on a similar role in a group. Time and again, relationships end in the same way. Some relationship experiences, which often have their own sordid history, tend to repeat themselves anew. And yet we don't understand why. Again and again do we ask ourselves, why me? With mental illnesses, this mechanism can be very pronounced. Most psychic symptoms have a relational dimension, as we will hear in detail in the next episode. For instance, someone with an anxiety disorder who can only be calmed by a doctor, however far-fetched their fears may be, and who during psychotherapy immediately attach themselves with childlike needs to the therapist and their diagnostic assessments. Or another person with psychosomatic symptoms, whom the therapist doesn't appear to be able to reach with words. Or a person with depressive symptoms, who must always be prodded by others until they become quite angry. Or a person with traumatic experiences and a so-called borderline disorder, who for some inexplicable reason continually starts up relationships with potentially violent perpetrators. These relationship dynamics are usually not a side effect, but rather are central to the psychic problematic. Fundamental to psychoanalysis is understanding the mechanism of these relationship patterns and to gain a new experience with a therapist. Experience in relationships is the key to transforming ourselves, and thus psychotherapy is, to a considerable degree, understanding and working on relationships. Even the meaning of sexuality is disputed in psychoanalysis, and each school assesses it differently. Freud ascribed a large part of psychic symptoms to a sexual origin, most often from childhood, although what Freud meant by sexuality is something completely different than what is normally meant by this term, which no doubt has led to many misunderstandings. Today, psychoanalysts view the world of mental experience from very different perspectives. Contemporary developments depart considerably from the Freudian conception. After all, our social reality has also changed. The prevailing sexual morals in our society are very different from those in Europe around 1900. At any rate, it is hard to imagine psychoanalytic treatments today that would attribute every utterance to some sexual meaning. And yet, without a doubt, sexuality plays an important role, for indeed it belongs to our basic human necessities, along with sleep, hunger, and thirst, or the wish for an intimate bond. One last point, the famous couch. Is it still part of psychoanalysis that the patient lays on the couch and the analyst and analysant don't see each other while speaking? There can be no general answer to this question. There are good reasons for why analysis should take place on a couch, just as there can be good reasons against it. There are therapeutic settings in which the patient lies traditionally on the couch, and yet others in which the session takes place while still sitting across from the therapist. Every analyst is trained in both techniques 
during their education, and will, in each individual case, always consider the therapeutic setting and discuss it with the patient. As we will see, there are psychoanalytic short-term therapies, which can be very helpful for many mental problems, for instance, the mentalization-based therapy or dynamic interpersonal therapy. But basically, while there are many different settings, the duration and intensity of psychoanalysis is what often distinguishes it from other methods. Not always, but in many cases, psychoanalysis takes place over a long period of time. However, what that means can vary considerably. Sometimes there are multiple sessions per week over several years. Sometimes one weekly session over the course of 50 or 100 hours. It depends on different factors, the individual indication, the specific treatment approach, but of course, also on external circumstances. For example, there are big differences in how many sessions health insurance companies will cover. In Germany, for instance, statutory health insurance covers up to 300 sessions, in individual cases even more, while in other countries it is up to 40 sessions. And in still others, there is no coverage, and psychotherapy must be paid entirely on one's own. Psychoanalytic treatments must find a suitable solution to the circumstances at hand. Mental processes, on the other hand, cannot be calculated, require time, and cannot be forced. Psychoanalysis is an intimate and moving process in which topics are addressed that can be laden with fear or burdened with shame and which are deeply rooted in our identity. And for that reason, it is important that the therapist and patient get to know each other very well. This can only take place in a delicate, deliberate process in which there is enough time to develop deep trust and mutual understanding. Oftentimes, the initial symptoms, such as panic attacks, disappear quite quickly in the course of the therapy, so that the real problems may come into view such as questions of identity, interpersonal relations, deep grief, or emptiness, our relationship to our parents, experience from childhood, or questions of how to live our lives and the meaning of life, which are all deeply ingrained in our own biography. And to ensure that change is possible, we need something that is perhaps especially difficult today, but which is certainly part of the first steps toward psychic development to take our time. This podcast is written and produced by Cecile Lutz and Jakob Müller. Translated and read by Solomon Lawrence.